Today's reading is from Genesis 16, verses 1 to 15. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave called Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave, and perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ City. Good morning, Christ City. Can you guys hear me? Am I on? I don't know. Oh, there I am. There we are. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, My name is Marissa Stubbs. I'm one of the elders um, here at Christ City Church. And that is all the introduction about myself. Let's get started. We are in a sermon series on women in the Bible. This series is called Azar. Um, Coming from Genesis, where God creates Eve according to the image of God, saying, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Azar means help or helper. And if you haven't heard Matthew's introduction to this series last week, I'd encourage you to listen to that, where he undermines the notion that help means anything that is subservient or second-class or inferior. So by way of a personal introduction to this this series, it made me think a lot about my home church called Ebenezer Amy Church. Eben meaning stone and Azar meaning help, Ebenezer being the stone of help. And it made me think of my mom, Erica, who joined this church when I was 12 or 13 years old while my dad was still stationed uh, in military bases far away. And because of Ebenezer, I have a spiritual history of having four mothers who were preacher teachers of the word. And these women are women like Reverend Dr. Joanne Browning, the Reverend Dr. Renita Weems Espinosa, whose book I'll be referencing today, Dr. Jackie McCullough, Reverend Dr. Tobias Sababu Thomas, Sandra Chloe, Decky Frazier, Reverend Dr. Cecilia Bryant, Reverend Jessica Ingram, and then the Reverend Dr. now Bishop Vashti McKenzie. And there were so many, many more. 
And so in this series in the word, I want to honor these women who've been in the word because from because of them, because of them, I grew up in a tradition where women's voices and women's stories and women's leadership were valued, not just for other women, but for everyone. Uh, so uh, some introductions to this to this text. I got uh, got seven chapters to cover. <laughs> um, just hold on because we will go over 30 minutes. There's nothing that I can do about trying to put seven chapters into 30 minutes um, in a story that is incredibly complicated. But one of the things, this is a text more than, and I, can't, I shouldn't say more than any other, but this is a text that rather than driving me to commentary, drove me to ask the Lord, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are you saying? What are you saying? And what are you saying for me? What are you saying for the church? What are you saying? What are you saying? And rather than relying a lot on what other people have written, it was the Holy Spirit that I have had to rely on to make sense of this word for me and hopefully for you and call on the Holy Spirit this morning to translate the words of my mouth to your hearts because I can't hold it your stories and this story, but God can. So Hagar's story is a story, I have no idea why I'm crying. I have no idea why I'm crying. Um, please do not let that scare you about what I'm getting ready to get into, it just happened, oh my gosh. Anyway, um, Hagar's story is a story of intersectionality. Um, the intersectionality between gender and class and ethnicity and age. It's a story of being a woman. It's a story of being a poor woman. It's a story of being a poor woman of color. It's a story of being a young poor woman of color. And it's a story of being a young poor woman of color stripped of her friends and family and being far from home. What happens when all of your energy goes up as a young poor woman of color stripped far from family and home to simply navigate and exist in an environment that is not created for you to thrive in? I'm not even gonna answer that question. I'm just gonna sit that right there and just say, like, have that question, like, what does it mean to navigate a space that is not designed for you, where all your energy goes into simply being there and trying to thrive? Genesis 16, 1 through 15. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So there's a photo. This is the first, this is how I first met Hagar in this photo. This is a photo from uh, Renita Weems, Espino, Weems Espinosa's book called Justice Sister Away. And this is the illustration of the title of, of the illustration of the chapter that's called A Mistress, A Maid, and No Mercy. And I want to, yeah, I just want to be obvious that Hagar is from Egypt, but so she probably would not have had, she, she may not have had, I shouldn't say probably not, but she may not have had the skin tone. But this is a, this is a, this is a, a story that resonates so much with the black experience. And this is a book that resonates so much and with the, um, Reverend Renita Williams' book resonates so much with the black experience that this is how the author chose to illustrate this. And this was my first introduction to Hagar. So what's Hagar's story? We know she's from Egypt. and We know she's a slave. It's very likely that she's a young virgin. 
Is Hagar the, the name that her mother gave her? Who are her parents? Does she have siblings? Who are her friends? What was her life like before she became a slave? How did she become a slave? Does she miss her people? Does she miss her home? What does she think about? What are her desires? Is she resigned to being a slave? Does she accept her lot in life? Does she have a fire in her belly? Does she long for her freedom? What advice has she been given along the way? Who are her allies now? What's her favorite thing to eat? What does she do when she's alone? What does she dream about when she goes to sleep at night? So this happens a lot in scripture where we just don't know the details of most of the people that we encounter. Some people are numbers, some like in a census or in, uh, or in counting an army. Sometimes we only know people by their name or where they're from. But I think we more readily employ what black preachers call the sanctified imagination. The idea of adding context to story more readily for some biblical personas than for others. I read a, um, a woman, a woman was, was introduced to Hagar outside of her experience. And she was introduced to Hagar uh, according to a book that um, a woman by the name of uh, Dolores Wilma wrote. And she said, I was dismayed to realize that I had never read the story of Abraham and Sarah from the perspective of what it meant to be Hagar. In other words, never had read Hagar's story. And I had never read her story in light of the story of slavery. Most of us think that it's just a good plot twist. And I had a conversation with a young woman a few weeks ago when I said, hey, what do you know about Hagar? And she literally said the words to me, well, isn't she a footnote to Abraham and Sarah's story? And that's what, that's what many of us are taught. That's what many of us are taught that her story is a footnote, that she's the best supporting actress in the movie that is Abraham and Sarah's life. But we always remember, we always remember that every supporting actress is the leading role of her own life. And we may want things from other people even as we want, um, we may want things for other people and from other people, but we need to remember that every person that we encounter has their own desires about their own lives. We need to do the work of paying attention to that. So some translations will say, um, also in, this, in the opening scripture, um, where it says uh, she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Some translations will say servant or maidservant. I, I, I don't think she was employed. Okay, I, I just don't, right? And not to say that that's what saying servant or maidservant means, but I want to use a word that is clear to say that I don't think this was employment. I don't think that she received a wage. I don't think that she just had a hard day on the job. I don't think that she just had to endure 10 hours of crazy time with her boss. This is about possession. This is about ownership. This is about having no rights. Sarah can walk into her room in the middle of the night. She can disturb her peace. She can change her life. One, lie, one word from Sarah can actually mean death for Hagar. One word from Abraham can mean death for Hagar. This is someone whose very body and children belong in someone else's control. Hagar is a slave. And because she is a slave, much of her story revolves around navigating the whims of people who have privilege and who have power. 
So Sarah said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So Abraham and Sarah have tried for many, 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 many years. They are very, very old. Like they're somewhere around like, you know, 80, 90, 100 years old. And they are not, they've not been able to have children. And they feel in their hearts that their fortunes are on the, like their, 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 their names, their reputations, their fortunes, their destiny, their futures are on the line because they cannot have children. And so Sarah says to Abraham, well, well I'll, give, I'll give my slave to you and perhaps I can build a family. We can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Now, I want to backtrack really quickly to Genesis 15, where the Lord appears to Abraham in a vision. And he says, Abram, don't be afraid. I'm your shield and your very great reward. And Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I'm childless? You've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. So Abram and, Abram and Sarah are convinced that having children are paramount again and again. Abram and Sarah will come back to the question of children and inheritance. Will we have children? When will it happen? How will it happen? Who will get what? This is a place of acute suffering for them. But there's a beautiful promise here because the Lord opens this exchange with Abraham saying, Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm your shield and your very great reward what does it mean to find protection and satisfaction and rest in the Lord while we wait? And even if we never get what our hearts desperately desire. And then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, meaning the servant in your house, this man, his name was Eleazar, will not be your heir. I don't want to have unidentified people like, you know, running around in this sermon. Um, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And so he took Abraham outside. God took Abraham outside and said, look up in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And it's important to note here that there's no clear word on who will birth the child in this promise. The only thing that's clear is that Abraham will be the fa- that Abram will be the father. And I think that's important. I think what I think this happens to us too. We hear God's promise and we say, oh, it must look like this socially acceptable thing, a forced surrogacy, because that was a social accepted thing at the time. Because this other thing, this thing of having a child when my wife is barren and I'm 90, well, that, that's impossible. So the only way that God's promise can be true is if we make it happen. And I think we do a lot of that too. We hear God's promises of blessings and care and provision, and we fit it into a construct. And if I were to be clear, we fit it in a construct of American capitalist, upperly mobile materialism and career-driven success. That is how we interpret God's promises of blessing and care and provision. What might it look like to reclaim biblical faith? And I think that's what Hagar has to teach us. So Sarah took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife, not his concubine, but his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now Hagar, even though it says that she gave her to her husband to be his wife, Hagar is treated as nothing more than a two-legged womb. She is treated as a two-legged womb. 
And this is a phrase by Margaret Atwood in, in The Handmaid's Tale. Some of you know the book, probably more of you know the series on Netflix. No one asked Hagar her opinion. And scholars, even non-scholars will say, but this was the custom of the time. It was okay to build a family. I don't think that Hagar cares what the custom of the time was. It was still her body. It was still her body. I don't think it changes how a young, a young woman feels as a virgin being sex, sex, sexually exploited to surrogate a child for someone else without her permission. Seriously, what if she didn't even want to be pregnant? Hagar is a pawn in another woman's quest for honor, prestige, and self-actualization. She's a pawn in a couple's quest for honor, prestige, and self-actualization. And not just privilege, and not just other people, but another woman, and particularly a woman who has privilege and power due, due to marriage and wealth and age. And when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now you know she's pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do what, with her whatever you think is best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar, Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. And I've heard people talk about this, this tension as a social rivalry between a woman who could conceive and a woman who couldn't conceive, ignoring completely that Sarah had all the power and that this was her idea to begin with. This is a woman who tried to control and manipulate. And, and I want to say this. I want to say this because God, God had to move me through some feelings about Sarah. He had to move, and I will get there. He had to move me through some feelings about Sarah. Um, and, and I'm going to get there. I will. I'm going to get there. But right now, right now, I am firmly entrenched in lady. What the what? Like, that is where I'm firmly entrenched right now. Um, Right, so this is a woman who takes no responsibility for a, for a backfired plan. And people, I've, I've read, you know, people claim Hagar didn't know her place and things would have gone better for her if she acted grateful for the opportunity to carry a baby on behalf of her mistress. Yeah, no, 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 no. No, and right, and, and let, me, let me just say that commentaries, some of these commentaries come out of really different traditions. I'm just going to leave that right there. I'm just going to leave that there. And you'll read some commentaries and I'm just like, oh, you've, you've never experienced the slave master coming into your, your, your palate and saying your body is mine and raping you. Oh, oh, okay. And then trying to navigate between the slave master and the slave and the uh, the slave mistress, you've, you've not experienced that. So that's the only way that, and then not only do you have to negotiate for yourself and for this baby, but maybe even for your family so that they're not sent far away or maybe even killed in front of your eyes. Clearly, there's no experience with this tradition. Otherwise, you couldn't say that this was a social rivalry and Hagar just didn't know her place. That, that wasn't even on the notes, I'm sorry. I just went all off my notes. I just went all off my notes. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> here's, here's the thing. People, um, people also assume that Hagar despised. The word here is despised. There are different words um, in different translations, but the word despised is used. And 
And, and a lot of times you'll read that it says that, that, that Hagar despised Sarah because she, she could get pregnant and Sarah couldn't. Maybe, 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 maybe Sarah was trying to compete with her ouster mistress, maybe. But the text doesn't give us a reason. And it's just as likely that as a slave in what is clearly a toxic household, being pregnant makes her more vulnerable. And she has some feelings about the woman who put her in that situation. What if Hagar didn't want that kind of vulnerability? Because if it were me, I'd be mad at the person who put me in that position without my consent to. So, so Sarai flips the script. She completely ab abdicates responsibility. Abraham completely abdicates responsibility, says your slave is in your hands. And Hagar has no protection whatsoever. And scripture is clear that Sarai then abused her power because the word mistreated is used. It didn't just say she treated her slave some kind of way. It says that she mistreated her. Scripture is clear that Hagar didn't deserve it. She would, and, and, and then Hagar, and, and the mistreatment is so harsh that Hagar runs away. She would rather take her chances pregnant in the desert than live within the confines of Abram's estate. And again, uh, around 14 or 15, I uh, heard Reverend Renita Weems Espinosa for the first time um, and bought her book, Just a Sister Away. Um, the subtitle of this book is A Womanist Vision of women's relationships in the Bible. And so I'm glad that this has been in my library for, um, for a good little clip. Um, and one of the things she says is, once Sarah's authority is restored, the barren wife proceeded to punish the slave woman for humiliating her. Humiliating her. She began to treat Hagar harshly. Women of color know only too well the kinds of violence the Egyptian woman must have been forced to endure. Beatings, verbal insults, ridicule, strenuous work, degrading tasks, and, like, and, and the like. And if we appear to be reading too much of our own brutal story into the biblical story, let it be pointed out that whatever the nature of the punishment Sarah imposed, it was evidently harsh enough to convince the slave woman to run away. The wilderness is preferable over her palate. And I, and I want to be clear that this is not a story about race, right? The social context, construct of race that we are living in right now did not exist during that time. But absolutely, there's ethnic pre prejudice, and absolutely, there's nationalism, and absolutely, there's sexism, and absolutely, there's ageism, and absolutely, there's classism. And in fact, at its most basic, Hagar's story is about the intersections of gender and class. And so while this isn't a story about race, it echoes loudly the ways that race and class and gender intersect, particularly in, in US history, and it's not in my wheelhouse to ignore that. So Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was a spring beside the side of the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel said, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. 
And so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. This is my favorite part of this text. Now, the angel of the Lord tells, he, he, the angel of the Lord shows up to Sarah, I mean to, to Hagar, and asks some questions, what are you doing? Where are you going? She's like, look, I'm running away, right? And he says, return and submit to Sarai. Now, I will say that my sensibilities are affected here, right? Uh, like my democratic sensibilities and also, you know, some ancestry of like, you know, some slaves running away. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm here for that, you know? Um, run away, get your freedom, right? So every part of me wants to see the Lord free Hagar, not to send her back to the woman who will mistreat her. God says, go back and submit to Sarai. This is, this is some humility right here. This is some humility that is required on, on, on Hagar's part. And there's also some self-preservation that's involved. It's not about telling her to know her place. The return to Abraham, she's in the desert, right? Let's just be real, she's in the desert. The, very, the return to Abram's estate could very well save her life and save her baby's life. For in spite, of the re- in spite of the mistreatment, the resources that Abram has to offer um, to her and her son might be her best chances of survival. And the only way to make it work is to figure out how to navigate it. And then he says, I've heard your misery. So name the boy Ishmael because I've heard you. The meaning of Ishmael's name is God will hear. And so on days when Hagar doubts her encounter with the angel of the Lord and and the angel's promises to her, when the the days when the reality of her life is almost unbearable, the name of her son will be a constant reminder of her encounter with God. God sees and God hears. And this is very clear that like, it's very clear in this passage that the Lord's ways are not our ways. Like what we would choose in this moment is, is probably not what we would, what God chooses is not what we would choose. It's not what we want. God's ways are not our ways. And I don't understand how God works. I really don't. I, sometimes I don't understand at all how he works, but here is what I know. Hagar experiences this as a holy moment. She names for herself I have seen God. Not, why did you give this word to me? This word is too hard. I can't do it. I don't want it. This is unfair. This is unjust. The way that she encounters this moment is I have seen God. So it doesn't matter how I feel about it because it's not my story. It's Hagar's. This is her story and I don't need to agree and I don't need to approve. She's encountered, Hagar has encountered God for herself. And Hagar gets to be the first woman in scripture, a pregnant, fugitive, slave woman to name God. Hagar gets to be the first woman. If you read from Genesis 1 all the way up until this point, all the other names of God are are, are given by men. God, Lord God, Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, sovereign Lord. These are all names that men gave and told in the context of their stories. And Hagar is the first woman who gives a personal word, a personal name for God, the God who sees me called Elroy. 
I have seen the God who sees me. And in sending this angel and in giving Hagar this promise about her son and in promising that she would be all right, God azard, if we can go back to even what this, this uh, series is called, azar, God azard her. God azard Hagar. He helped her. Hagar was strengthened and encouraged to return to navigate a life that was still hostile and volatile and built for women who were who, who not like her. And it made me think, when have I been azard by God? When have I been azard by God? And let's be real, that I have more power and privilege than Hagar did. And I've not experienced this level of sexual, sexual ex exploitation. I've not been pregnant. I've never not had the relative safety net of parents, siblings, and friends looking out for me when things went sideways. But my testimony, my personal testimony of being azard by God, it matters to me and it matters to God. Whether or not it's like Hagar's story and your testimony of being azard by God matters. It matters. So some of you know that uh, I founded and directed a culinary training nonprofit about seven years ago. And this past October, we decided to close it. And in one extraordinarily difficult meeting, uh, my board says to me that I might not get severance. Okay. And I think I and I, I'm thinking in like the span of a few moments. I think of what it's going to take to shut the thing down. I think of the extra work hours that I'm going to be asked to work. I think of the time, space, and energy that I won't have to look for another job. I think of the extra income I don't have in my household because I'm a single woman. I think of the money that I don't have in my savings account because I've been working for less than what I should have been. I think of all, all the students and staff and board members and customers and donors that still need my leadership and care. And I think of the many, many sacrifices that have been made along the way to build something that started as nothing but a dream between me and God. I went into so much debt and I earned a salary that only small nonprofits can give. And there were times that physical and emotional, my physical, emotional and mental health suffered. And sometimes I worked days that were so long that my feet and my back and my shoulders hurt for days afterwards. Because, because the culinary world is no joke, people, it is no joke. And now you're telling me, board, you're telling me after all of that, after, after stewarding lives and shepherding young people and losing sleep and going into debt, you're telling me that you can't care for me, that no one's there to care for me. You're telling me that I won't get, I won't get severance. There's no safety net. And so... I went a little, I went stoic, more stoic than I normally am. As you all know, I emote quite a lot. Uh, and I went a bit stoic in the meeting to preserve some relationships. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I got to my car and I sat in my car in front of the office. It's 10 o'clock at night and I'm in the car and I conference call two friends and I cry. And I don't remember a lot about that call, but there are three things that I remember very clearly. I said, I am in distress. And I need help. And has anyone seen the sacrifices that I've made? 
And then I went home and I woke up the next morning and the Lord said, read Psalm 20. And I was like, okay, Lord, let me read Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. And may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And may he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. And may he remember all your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And I could not believe that the Lord matched the cries of my heart verse for verse. Verse for verse. In that moment, God azar me. He azar me. He helped me. And it strengthened me to go on. And that psalm has been one of two stones of help for me. One of two Ebenezer's for me these last few months. And it has guided me through moments of struggle and uncertainty into a place that feels abundant. God did that. This is the God of Hagar. This is the God of Hagar. The angel of the Lord appeared to a pregnant fugitive slave woman and talked to her. This is the first time that we hear Hagar's voice. And it's the, actually, in this passage, it's the first time we hear Hagar's voice and it's, we only hear Hagar's voice with God. In spaces with Abra and Sarah, and Abraham and Sarah, her voice is silent and her words are not even recorded. But with God, she has voice. With God, she has voice. And even as we continue, it will only be in the Lord's presence that Hagar's words and thoughts are invited and acknowledged and heard. God loves and cares for all who he has made, wherever you are and whatever your situation. If you're in dire straits, if you've been silenced, unseen, unheard, mistreated, used and abused, God sees you and God hears you. God sees you and God hears you. So Hagar returns to Sarah, and her voice goes silent, silent once more. So now we get to Genesis 17. Oh my gosh, I'm going to take a little sip of water. There's a lot right there. Sorry. Because um, someone give me a tissue. I'm sorry. I'm having. I'm going to take the tissue from the communion, and that's not bad. That's not a good idea. I'm like, I just need a little help. Um, thank you. Um, thank you. I got it, guys. Thank you so much, Dana. Um, so Abraham and Sarah um, get name changes in, in Genesis 17. They get name changes because God wants them to identify with his promise. Abram becomes Abraham and Sarah becomes, Sarai becomes Sarah. And so God said to Abraham, I will bless, I will bless her, meaning Sarah, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. King, kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down and he laughed. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for, and for his, for, for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. But my covenant, I will establish with Isaac. And so God is saying, God is saying like, 
Abraham, I hear you. And I know that you still don't see how, how it's possible for me to let you and your wife, who you, you who are in your 90s and, 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 and centuries, you're century years old, um, how it's possible for you to have a baby and you're still trying to peg all of this hope on Ishmael, but I have another plan. I will bless Ishmael. He is your son, I will bless him. But my covenant is going to be with Isaac. And then it says in Genesis 21, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. He was gracious to her. And I paused because I was like, God, you were gracious to this woman that I have all these feelings about. And I had to hold that and God like was going to do some more with that. But I saw that and I was like, OK, I see that. I can't preach that yet, but I'm going to I see it. <laughs> And it says that the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore. So it doesn't matter that I'm not the biggest fan of Sarah. God is true to God's word and God honors God's promises because that is who God is. That is who God is. The child grew and was weaned and on the day Isaac was we and on the day Isaac was weaned Abraham held a great feast but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking she said to Abraham get rid of the slave woman and her son for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac and I do wish that I had the time to unpack the word mocking here that is similar to the word laughing that, that shows up again and again and again throughout this family story. I wish I had time to unpack that, but that's not Sarah's story. I mean, that's not Hagar's story. What did happen is that a young boy laughs. And for whatever reason, Sarah's ire is kindled again toward this young boy and her swiftness towards being unmerciful, particularly towards one who is vulnerable, is heartbreaking. And it's almost unfathomable when she has received a wave of God's mercy and having this child that she so desperately wanted. And so now that Sarah has birthed her own child, Hagar is disposable demoted from wife status back to slave status. And now that Isaac is born, Ishmael no longer is the family that Sarah desperately wanted to build. Both Hagar and Ishmael need to go. And the text says that the matter distressed Abraham greatly. God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of a slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. And Hagar is turned from the house with no means of economic survival, with only enough food and water that she can carry on her shoulders. And she's sent into the desert. And so inevitably the water runs out. And Ishmael must be weak from hydration. He must be weak from walking because it says that Hagar put the boy under a bush she went off and sat down a bow shot away and thought to herself, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there 
And she began to sob. And Hagar's voice, and also Ishmael's voice, are turned way up. And it says that God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand. For I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up and he lived in the desert and became an archer. So twice, twice we see that God has made provision for Hagar. Twice he meets her in the desert. Twice her survival is ensured. Twice God makes a way out of no way. Hagar's story teaches us about God's provision when we are stripped of reliance on others and even when we are stripped of reliance on ourselves. And what does it mean for us to be a church that learns from modern day Hagar's to see, as Wilma Bailey puts it, to see how, how women continue to survive despite difficult and near impossible situations, how they've experienced God in the midst of oppression and how they've maintained their faith in a God who sees and hears. We worship this God of Hagar who sees, who hears, and makes a way out of no way. And I was thankful, I was so thankful, right? I was thankful to spend time with this God of Hagar. But as I've mentioned along the way, I had some discomfort in this text. This story disturbed my framework that right and wrong behavior deserves a, set of, a certain set of consequences. It disturbed that. It feels grossly unfair, it feels far from us, and yet I think this narrative is far more representative of the everyday lives of folks who don't have access to comfort and wealth and power and education. This story happens more often than we care to think. And then while I was sitting in that space, just trying to hold this space, God said, Marissa, Let's go look at Galatians 4. And I was like, oh, you're trying to disturb me just a little more. Because in Galatians 4, it says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh and his son by the free woman was born according, was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are taken figuratively. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. And it is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free. And I was done. I closed my Bible and I put it on my table and I walked away. I really did. I was like, oh, no, I'm done. I'm done. How, what, what do you want me to do with this? I was, so, I was already so upset at Sarah. And now all of a sudden, Paul pulls the theological rug out from under my feet by quoting the harshest line of the story. Get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave's woman's son will never share. And the inheritance of the free woman, I was so unhappy. 
And I was in this tension bubble for days, feeling really uncomfortable. Because these stories, they feel like they compete. And yet, yet, I know them to be true. I know them both to be true. And yet they compete. And I don't know how to reconcile these two things. And I sat in that space for days. And I really asked God, I was like, how do I believe in the God of Hagar? How do I believe in, in, the, in the God of Paul? Why do I even need to see this? Why do I even need to introduce this? This is a complication on top of all the other complications that you're going to ask me to work through. Because I believe that the whole of scripture tells the same story. And I also believe that we don't get to pick and choose scripture like a salad to say, oh, I don't eat olives. And so I don't do Galatians 4. (laughs) Just push it on the side of the plate, send it back. You know, I'm allergic to that. And in the face of and, and here's the thing. I didn't know if God would speak about this text by the time I got to to today. But I also knew that I had to mention it. That was very clear. I knew I had to mention it and I didn't know if there was going to be a word for you about what it meant. And so here's what I would have shared. Well, I'm going to share it now, so I'm going to share it. So I was like, why would I say what I shared? So anyway, um, in the face of things that we know to be hard and uncertain, in the face of things that are hard and uncertain, we cling to what we know to be true. And that is what I was wrestling with. And that's what Justin reminded me of. Justin Fung reminded me of in a conversation that we had. We do, we cling to what we know to be true in the face of uncertainty. And that's even with scripture. And the two things that I know to be true are God is good and the word of God is true. And I would add another to this to say, and God speaks, maybe not in my time, there's an expression that, that, that I grew up with. He may not come when you want him, but he's right on time. He's right on time. And then God started to, to also give me a bit more sympathy for, for Sarah. What does it mean to not be remembered as the worst things that you'd ever done? Right. And there's something right now about our culture that says you're you're either the worst thing that you've ever done or you're wrong. And so no one can either imagine you being right or changing your mind or growing. (laughs) There's something in our cult in our culture right now where we're frozen. In bad decisions and we're frozen. And we never we never get to move, we never get to change. And that's just not who God is. It's not who God is. And the thing that popped this and I and I and so I just sat with that and that those things alone made me feel better about holding this text. And then um, also in a conversation with Justin Fung, like God just kind of popped the bubble. We were on the phone for like 45 minutes and Justin's asking questions. I'm like, no, Justin, that's not it. And he would ask another question. I'm like, no, that's not it. And he would say something. I'm like, Justin, for real, I am distressed. Like this is bothering me a lot, right? And so we're just like going back and forth. Um, Justin, thank you for being my friend, like really. (laughs) Um, And Justin said one word that I'd already read, but he said it and I heard it. I 
heard it, right? We need community. We need to struggle in this text with people, with, like we need to struggle together. And there's this piece in, and there's this piece that says, and, and wait, hold on, I, I, wanna, I wanna get this right. Where does it say, um, these things are to be taken figuratively. Some translations will call it allegorically, not literally. This part in Galatians where Paul is saying, look, you have a promise under a free woman and you have a promise under a slave woman. Like, get rid of the slave. Like, live not as, as children of the slave woman, but of, of the free. This is an allegory. An allegory is a story or a poem or a painting in which characters and events are symbols of something else. And this is different from the actual story, poem, or picture. An allegory is, one, is a one-dimensional metaphor. It's trying to make one point. It doesn't hold complexity, it doesn't hold nuance, and it's not literal. And so what Paul is actually saying here, he's trying to help the Galatians solve a particular problem. Sometimes you'll hear people call it task theology. All of Paul's theology is not laid out here. All of the things that Paul believes is not laid out here. He is trying to help the Galatians learn how to live in God's freedom, in the freedom of God's grace, rather than under the law. He's not talk, Paul is not talking about care or provision or love or imago day. right? Paul is talking about what does it mean to not live under the law anymore and to live under grace. So as we would say, if we wanted to make this story bigger, this is where the, like, right, this is where the metaphor breaks down. You can only, in this, in the scripture in Galatians, you can only take it so far. The whole, the whole of Hagar's story still holds true. God loves her. He's still her God. God did not condemn uh, Hagar and Ishmael to death, and he makes provisions for them to live and prosper because he does care for them. And scripture is also clear that the covenantal promise lied through Sarah, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so as much as I would identify with the slave woman, I also have to identify with Sarah because her story is my, my story too. Sarah receives promises not because of how wonderful she is, but simply because God said this is how it will go down. And I've done some jacked up things in my life and I still need God's promise and I still need God's grace to cover me. This passage quickly disabuses us of the notion that we operate in anything approaching a divine meritocracy. That somehow promise and power are only entrusted to individuals solely on the basis of talent, effort, and achievement. And we're uncomfortable with that. But what is, what's clear is that we don't get to pick our spiritual ancestors. We get who we get. Hagar is our spiritual foremother, and Sarah is our spiritual foremother. The Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did this for Sarah. He did for Sarah what he promised, and this is the extraordinary, extravagant grace of, extravagant grace of God. 
And so I want to play a spoken word piece um, to close this out. I want to play a, a, a piece by Michael Warrens. He's a, a spoken word um, artist. The name of this piece is called Freak Show. And it's something of a sanctified imagining of heaven. And it's also about the extravagance of God's grace. Never dismiss the visions of madmen. Wisdom can be gathered from anyone who sees what others cannot. Drunk men tell no tales. Poets cannot lie. Poets cannot lie because we do not divide fact from fiction. There's often more truth in our fantasy worlds and metaphors than human courts where liars swear to speak honestly in the name of laws they break, in the name of gods they disobey. The prayers of the proud will never reach heaven, but God hears the slurred words of the stumbling prophets, and all will be cursed who mock them. It is not an easy task to plead with the world, to grieve for the world, especially since God often speaks through those most broken. The picture we paint in our minds is a far cry from the reality of heaven. When the saints go marching in, it will not be a parade of the almost perfect. God does not reserve grace for those who only need a little bit. The healthy are in no need of a doctor. The healer is for the sick. Heaven will be a freak show. Promiscuous young men will embrace the virgin priests who molested them, and their hearts will both be pure. How amazing is grace. The street corner preacher will be greeted by thousands of people she thought were not listening. Thank you for enduring the times we mocked you. Your sidewalk sermons are why we know God. How amazing is grace. Aborted children will tug the spotless robes of young women and say, Hello, mother. I'm so glad to finally meet you. The former master will see the lashed back of his no longer slave and say, You taught me the love of the Savior. The suicide bomber who prayed for forgiveness during the millisecond between pressing the detonator and standing before the throne of God. The guilty thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross. The madman who spoke to invisible beings will stand between Michael and Gabriel with the grin as wide as an angel's wingspan and say, I knew I wasn't crazy. The missus and the mistress, the victim and the rapist, the foreign and the racist, the bullies and the geeks. All those who somewhere along the way believed, whose sins were forgiven and strength was given to love their enemies. So many we swore there is no way in hell we would see them in heaven. But they will be there. We will be there. With a song on our lips and our eyes full of faith. And we'll sing how amazing so in heaven, I think we'll see, we'll see Hagar, and we'll see Sarah, 
will see the slave and her owner. And I'll meet the God of Hagar. And I'll meet the God of heaven. The God, the God of heaven. The God of Sarah. I'll meet the way-making God. And I'll meet the promise-keeping God. The God of provision and the God of grace who meet in the person of Jesus Christ.